We're going to uh, interview and have a Q&A with Paul and Liz Clout. Uh, in the first part of the interview, I'm just going to spend most of the uh, questions time with Paul, with a little bit of Liz. We'll have a little break and then focus a little bit more on Liz and, and as little as Paul as possible. <laughs> Paul knows that I love him. The more you tease Paul, the more he feels loved. <laughs> Well, well, these guys are awesome. We're yeah. extremely privileged to have them. Yeah. Yeah. Join me in what we call them. Paul and Liz, <laughs> Noosa locals. Uh, Andrew calls Paul the Don of Noosa. And indeed, when I've been walking around Noosa, I've found mm -hmm. when I drop his name, like I walk to a restaurant and go, I want Paul's seat. And if they go, I'm sorry, we're full, I'm saying Paul said I could come here. And it's amazing how many people shut the door on <laughs> Does he look like me? <laughs> yeah. But starting with Paul, so Paul, you kind of, I guess, stumbled into uh, design and building and development almost a little bit by accident. You were in Noosa and really just surfing. Yep. No real plan at all and loving life, loving the surf, at that stage in time, feeling like you're living the dream. Yep. And you, you say how your, your, your dad's having a bit of a conversation with you and says, look, you can't do this your whole life. And your first response was, why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, but just tell us a little bit what was going on around at that time for you and, um, you know, you felt... Happy with it? Yeah, look, I was um, 22. I finished my apprenticeship as a carpenter and my boss basically said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to just go surfing. And we sort of parted company and <laughs> I had an old combi at the time and got in that and started driving north. I think I had a mate with me who bailed out once I got to Noosa. But, um, and then I got to Noosa. I loved Noosa Heads because it had beautiful waves and got there and thought, okay. This will do. This is good. So um, um, my dad came up um, a number, or nearly a year later, because I spent about a year on the dole, which was possibly the best year of my life. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great for all you business people to know that. <laughs> yeah. um, and he came up and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm having fun. Why? And he says, you need to get your act together. And I'm sort of going, mm, okay, what does that mean? So... Anyway, he, my, my dad was awesome, so he, um, he helped me set up a, a speculated project. In other words, we build a house and then we sell it. So we sold that house and um, made a small profit out of it. He was good enough to split the profits with me and he went away and I um, kept going. There was one incident that happened in that job site because my dad as much as he was awesome he was a pain, he was a pain in the neck too so he um, wanted me to work Saturdays and Sundays and absolutely every no he was against Sundays because he was very religious Anglican but um, there was one moment where I threw my hammer at, at him in frustration but and and to be honest with you the only thing that I was disappointed with was that I missed him so <laughs> anyway I stormed off and that's another and then in that first project you did with your dad, did you feel fear in that? It's a, it's a first venture, it's a specky, you're buying a plot of land, you're building on it, selling it. I think at that particular time, no, because it wasn't my finance. Yeah. So, and I was still finding my feet. Um, however, he did leave and we, I did another project after that and that one was more scary because... I didn't know whether I was going to be able to find the ends of the finance to finish it and that type of thing. Um, so yeah, that was a lot of a lot more fear coming in later on. Yeah. And then second project goes well. Second project <coughs> goes well. And gives you a, a greater sense of confidence. Yep. Uh, and, and there was a bit of a run that you then, as each step, getting more confident, getting more nuanced, understanding more what you understood your customers wanted. How long did that run, I guess, go for? Our first major job was when Lizzie and I got married, and um, I think she takes credit for it. I don't know why, but she does. Um, 
And then she also takes credit for the fact that we've never been out of work since we got married. So, um, <laughs> Unless it was by choice. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we had a really good run. Um, I love design, so I, would, uh, I had a policy that I wouldn't uh, build the house unless I designed the house, and I wouldn't design the house unless I built the house. So if you came to, say, us as, a, as a, you know, the builders, you would have to take our package so we could charge a little bit more than perhaps what some of the other guys were doing and we had a really amazing run for you know a number of years. And there was a lot of courage in that right because mm -hmm. you've, you've got someone that might be passionate about their design yep. and then looking for a builder mm -hmm. and, and you've been quite distinct to say I want to have a greater control end to end to deliver a product Yeah. That, and so that costs more money and when did that happen? Like, that didn't happen at House 2 or House 3. I think I was running on the uh, adrenaline and I was running on the fact that it was successful. And, um, you know, we were probably doing as many jobs in that little town as what anyone was. And there was a sense of pride um, in that, which is never right. <laughs> and it was like this slow evolution. So it's almost like you can't, some people want to be up and running in business and doing some amazing things like now, because it's a now mentality. But seriously, for me, it was just like step after step. And, you know, you build one house and in those days it would take, I don't know, three to four months to build one of those houses. The ones we do now take a whole lot longer, but you build one of those and another one of those and then you change things and then, and it's time in that, you know, there's a, there's a, significant amount of time. You can see how grey my hair is too, so I'm not exactly young. So. But, um, yeah. and, and it's true that Andrew calls you, his nickname for you is also Wallet because you look like a weathered wallet. That's See how much he loves me? <laughs> yeah. But how um, are you feeling at that stage, right? About because... being called a wallet? <laughs> <laughs> Liz is still with me, so... Yeah. <laughs> the confidence, did you, did you feel like self-made? Did you feel you needed God? Did you feel like you were doing it on your own strength? There was a bit of a, this, I guess this golden period, right? Like, yep. it's rolling, it's rolling, you're knowing your thing, you're getting known for that. Yep. Uh, what, what's your feeling at that point? What's the state of your heart at that point? I guess the, uh, just knowing that we were, what we were creating and what we were building was pe people were liking it and there was a rule. That sense of pride was really, really strong at that point and I suppose I was pushing crazy and, I, and the stress was getting pretty crazy as well and I was actually thriving on the stress because stress actually can be a good thing but, and I was enjoying it. but. I realised that some stuff was going on. My body actually started to suffer. I was only like 35, and um, I ended up getting all these really weird symptoms of various little things, and I became this full-on hypochondriac because one minute I'd think I was going to die from bowel cancer, and then I'd have tests for that, and everything come back clear, and then I'd think, oh, okay, now I'm all right for a couple of months, and then something else would go on, I'd have tests for that, and nothing would come back. And it was just stress because I was just trying to do and it. But one of the problems was is that I was a com complete control freak. So I had a perfectionist <coughs> attitude and I used to actually try and do everything myself. Um, so there was a period there for, I don't know, eight years or something where I would get up in the morning at um, six o'clock. I'd do my ordering. This is pre-mobile phones. Um, I would go to the job, work on the job all day long with the boys, come home at night, play with the kids for an hour, um, put them in bed and then pull out the drawing board and start drawing plans because back in those days I used to actually physically draw them by hand with pens and that sort of thing. So I used to draw the plans, I used to supervise the jobs and I used to quote the jobs and do the ordering. So, um, so yeah, it was all a bit out of control. And for how, and, and, and it's, it's, you know, then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you've been doing it for longer and longer and longer and then running out of, I guess, some energy or some peace there. And then Lizzie, you're watching this. 
what are you seeing? Is it, were you thinking this is warning signs, or are you thinking at this stage that's just what you've got to do? We're just in start-up and establish phase. What was it like for you? It was probably a little bit of both. I think um, what happened in that, because he was so uh, obsessive about the work um, side of things and, and achieving such success that it was sort of a treadmill that you run on, I feel like even at that stage our, our two lives started to go like that because I then just focused on raising the kids and, and um, seeing that that is my role. And, and uh, honestly, when you're spending that much time in the office and from the start, there's not much communication that it ends up happening. And so I would track that period as I just bunkered down and did my thing and survived and he did his thing and we, I think there was an emotional disconnect that happened during that period that eventually came, had, out. Had came out, yeah. 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 And was this, Paul, uh, just in terms of the timing of these things, was, I know there was a time when you, you would say, uh, I know you didn't use the words breakdown, but there was a time it was like, I'm just overwork. Um, yeah, completely. Yeah. Tell us about that. So, uh, for a moment, I was I was loving it. I was thriving on the stress, and we were successful, and I was, you know, had that, like I said, that sense of pride. But um, after I started getting uh, the stress signs and everything else, in a period of about a year, I went from really loving what I was doing to absolutely hating it and feeling co quite trapped. Because when you sign a contract for building a house, it's kind of like you're locked in with that owner for. <laughs> six months, 12 months, whatever it's going to take. There's no escape. You can't just say, oh, I don't want to do this anymore and walk away. So I felt a little bit trapped. Um, so I decided that we were going to slowly close everything down, not take on any more work and take off for six months. And we took our two-year-old, four-year-old and seven-year-old around uh, parts of the world for six months, which was to Lizzie's horror. So. <laughs> most, most people would think that was a dream, but um, for me that was a two-year-old, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old with no, you know, was pre-internet, so we'd rock up in towns in Europe and have no idea where we were staying or knocking on hotel doors trying to find somewhere to sleep and as the one that's trying to be the security of the family I was like, ah, but I got used to it. <laughs> so you're burnt out and you're wanting to come back. What did you set yourself a time frame, or was it just like I, I just need to replenish, and when I'm replenished, I'll think about it? Um, yeah, we, <coughs> we sat down and did a fairly extensive itinerary, um, and we were going to we we're actually travelling for seven months because we wanted to do Canada as well, but we got to the six month mark, and I felt like I was relaxed and chilled and. We figured that you know the drain on the kids was probably too much, so we cut that bit out and came home after six months. Had no idea what we were coming back to, or you know, whatever. And the business is still in a good state. It's been ticking on, um, and then you've come back in and. No, the business is not there. Okay, so at you, you, you before leaving, yep. or you, you right up until when we left, the, the business was going okay. We finished up the last house, and then there was nothing much for that six month period. Okay, so you, you shut yeah. it. Okay, so you've come back, and now it's clean slate. Yep. Is there a determination in you to do things differently? What's, yeah, totally. what's changed in your heart at this point? And roughly, what year was this? Oh, year was ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Yeah. Um, and I, I figured because of the designs that we're doing with the building that there must have been a market for my design work. So, and I was really conscious about the stress factor. Um, and anyone that's gone through some stress will sort of understand that the, um, it's, uh, it's a fear when, you've, when you sense it coming back on. I used to, I was saying some, uh, to someone this morning, it's almost like I could feel myself with a big tractor with great big wheels like this and I'm running in front of it type of thing and that's fine, I can just cruise in front of it but every now and then it would accelerate and try and run me over And because I felt like if I sat in the office until midnight every night I still couldn't get done with everything that had to be done so it was just like that. So when, after coming back I recognised that there's no way in the world I wanted to go down that track again. So I changed the actual 
basis of the business and we went, um, pretended I was an architect, and um, which you get in trouble for these days, <laughs> and uh, set up a design business and yeah, that was tough for a year or two, wasn't it? Because we I was still drawing plans by hand and I'm not the best drawer in the world, but people seem to accept them for some reason. So, um, yeah, and that uh, over a period of years started to take off and, and, and it went really, really well, the design business. So, so stopped building and then there's, and, and you said, you, you, so doing that for some years, just doing the design work, yep. over building, then you have a client who says, I love your design, I want you to build, and you said, no, they go, we really think you should do it, and then you kicked off the building again. That's right. As well. And yeah. then um, GFC hits. Mm -hmm. and you, you, you explain it by saying, well, pre-GFC, you were, you were kind of going, it can't go wrong. Yep. And um, pre-GFC, you've extended on projects. Um, GFC hits, and yeah. literally the, the property market in Noosa gets obliterated. Mm. Um, and even just seeing some of the, you know, some of the property results when when um, Paul was helping us look at some numbers, like, you know, people buying a property and it and it hitting a third of the value. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about, you know, true negative equity environment. But mm. you're in it. You've got the money in the game, and you've taken this massive hit. Yeah. What's what's that like? Terrible. Um, You're good with words, by the <laughs> extensive vocabulary. <laughs> Only got to grade 10. <laughs> An hour of high school. Oh, oh, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it's tough because it's kind of like, you, you, you know, everything that you touch, it felt like prior to that moment was successful and turning into gold and then all of a sudden this particular project goes pear-shaped completely out of my hands it's not like like i did anything wrong or anything different to what i would have normally done the project sells for about two million dollars instead of three and a half million dollars but we've also propped up the finance for it for a year before it sells and then the bank wants to full co close on the loan and things like that so at the end of the day you let it go and just go man that was a big learning curve so it's almost like one great big backward step you know we we were kind of at a point where we owned our house really and we were kind of living I've a dream watched you talking about that quadrant i watched you walk really quickly from confidence to fear mm. yeah. so in every in all the other future projects we were then navigating a, a fear state of mind rather than a confident state of mind that has been a real journey out of that because mm. in that time you still you, 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 you need to fund things <clears throat> yep so you're still keeping cash flow going even if the profitability may have been questionable at certain times just to keep that's right the engine running so yeah. Yeah, just tell us a little bit about that. Well, obviously, you, a lot of you would have experienced that time, but it's kind of like, okay, you've got a design that you normally charge X amount for, where someone's now prepared to pay half of that or a quarter of that, and do you turn around and go, okay, well, it's better than doing nothing at all, so we'll take it on. And if it puts food on the table and if it pays a little bit of the interest. So there was a, no a number of years there, probably five years straight, where we just worked pretty hard just to make ends meet and mainly pay the interest and then watch because we were taking out loans to pay the interest and then watch that whittle away and then you kind of go okay great here we go again so you know it got to the point where it was pretty almost like a you know it was not going to be pretty if we sat there for another 10 years and then we ended up having to sell a house our house and which was really tough because it was a family home for 10 years or so and we love the house we put a lot of effort and creativity into it and it was a beautiful spot but to actually let that go was it's really tough but if we didn't do that i don't think we'd be sitting in the room here today so. and what's the state of your heart at this point and yeah so because you've, you've had this time where it's like okay almost too much work yep not going to work like that you've come back again you've hit another run beautiful GFC hits, where's faith in all of this? How did you feel like you had been 
Yeah, really, really smashed, really, because you kind of question what God's doing sometimes. Um, and you kind of go, well, you know, because we used to, you know, without bragging about it, we used to try and fund our local church and various things if they wanted to put an air conditioning system in or something like that, we, we would try and do that. I'll help out with that type of thing. And then some of the projects that we're doing were primarily just so that we could help out those sort of things. So you turn around and go, where the heck is God when, you know, the, in all this sort of thing? And I think every everyone's going to experience some points of downfall in business and that type of thing. And you've really got to figure out how to navigate that. But for me, if I look at, look at it now, um, it was possibly for character building and that, and for Lizzie and I, I think it was probably the best thing that could have ever happened. At the time, it was horrendous, but if I look at it from a, you know, 10-year period, it was, it was awesome. Specifically you know. why? Just to probably because I was a really arrogant bastard before then. <laughs> <laughs> Make, make, make yeah. yeah. Can I? Well, I know the hot Asian said piss before, so it was kind of like. Sorry, I'm really getting yeah. bad now. Um, sorry, what was the question? Yeah, but when you say I can look back in that 10-year period, it's been the You're best thing for bastard. us. <laughs> <laughs> But specifically, how was it good for you, right? So you've hit this moment. It's terrible, right? You, there yeah. must be these moments where I can imagine you're in the morning, the shower's on, and you can't move. You're almost paralysed by what needs to happen in the day. Um, and you can look back on that time yep. and go, best thing for me, best thing for us. Mm. Right. I've, well, you don't know that well yeah no <laughs> it doesn't feel like that but why now I think you can look back we can look back on it and see moments there that were that we really had to rely on God and it's when you when you're a business person and things are going really well it's really easy just to be the the driver and you know you can you can do all sorts of things if, if you you know you're courageous enough and everything runs with you but all of a sudden, if you can't do that anymore, um, it's like, okay, you gotta reach out to God and you know, as much as sometimes you're thinking, where's God in all this? He's right there with you and you know, circumstance sometimes allows those sort of things to happen and I think God uses that circumstance to pull us back to where maybe he wants us to be in a relationship with him. And how have you changed? So there's a part where you're saying you're not as arrogant. There's certainly a change in terms of the stress you carry. And, and I guess part of that is the amount of control, that, that how you try and control things must have changed. But how are you different because of the failures and difficulties that you've had to go through? How are you different? Um, I think I'm a lot more chilled. I don't have a, I still have a little bit of a perfectionist attitude which creeps in there every now and then with some of my work and that type of thing but I am way more chilled I don't tend to feel like I have to do all the job myself and I realize now that if I did I'd be crazy um, and so I think I think I've learnt the art of micromanagement type of thing as well as being able to just let everyone else do the work and direct it um, and then just take a more chilled out approach and realize that actually God's on our side. Um, take good steps, take wise steps, but um, you know, take him on the journey. And I think one of the things that when, I, when we did that project, I would have to, it had this stupid tree that hung over the pool in it. This is the one that went pear-shaped and every time the wind would blow, the leaves of this tree would blow into the pool and I would have to, I'd go, oh no, I've got to go around and clean it because there might be an inspection tomorrow or something, a real estate inspection, and we desperately needed to sell it. So I would go around and, and clean the pool, which would take about half an hour. And I remember having these conversations with God, arguments with God actually, <laughs> you know, like, 
why is this happening? You know, what, what, what are you doing? Why, why isn't this selling? And so forth. And it was kind of, there was a couple of moments there where I don't know how many times I cleaned that pool. And I don't know how many times I asked that question of God of why is this happening? But quite often the whispers would come back and he would say to me, and as one point of, you know, he said, well, was this my idea or your idea? And I sort of went, ah, okay. And then I started to think, did I actually ask God when I went into that project whether this was a good idea and was he with me in it? And, um, you know, I don't think I did. So I never spent any time on, on that because I felt like in my strength and my talents or whatever they were, that I could do it and pull it off. But I didn't take God on the journey with me at all. So now, if I'm stepping into a project, I'm basically saying to him, okay, you've got to make the step, which is scary, but I basically say to God, if you're not in this, shut the door, just shut the door. So I don't pray about whether I should take the step, because I know he wants me to take the step, but what I pray for is for him to close the door if it's not, if it's not right. And that, that door can be heaps of different things. It can be sometimes I just lose interest in it, or sometimes... And that's usually what happens, is you just lose interest. It just doesn't feel that good anymore. Or it could be a really crazy thing, like perhaps someone doesn't accept the offer that you were buying a property for, or whatever it is. Or there could be something else. But quite often, it, it's just a, you lose peace over it. And that's, which is a really weird thing to try and say, okay, is God in this, or <coughs> is he not? Mm. And I think... Um, that is, that is the best thing that you can do, is just ask God to shut the door when you're not confident, mm. if it's not in Him. Mm. I love that. I mean, practically, I think um, years ago, Jeff at the back shared with me in terms of how they approach decisions, which is when they're facing them, they pray about it by themselves, and then they quietly live in the decision. They don't tell anybody. And then if they're exhibiting the fruits of the spirit of peace and joy and all those types of things, they're going, okay, they can give you a better, mm. better insight. So I, I thought that's something that Claire and I've applied to things. Um, you've also spent a bit of time overseas in Vanuatu. Yep. Um, and just tell us when did that happen, and what were the, what some of the work you've done there? Um, over the last 15 <coughs> years, I've have um, myself and a mate and a bunch of other people have been involved in a little charity in Vanuatu where um, I went with a mate about that long ago and he invited me over and I, we actually went and fixed up a toilet block in a village and when we got there we just looked I just looked around and saw the you know the poverty which was a two-hour flight from Brisbane and I'm thinking wow I can't believe this is happening right on our doorstep and um, anyway we went a couple of times and did some little projects and that type of thing and then we figured out figured for a while how, how do we actually affect these people because there was kind of like little kids running around that weren't going to school and there was teenagers that were kind of just hanging around the, the village and the adults weren't working and they were eating, I don't know, some kind of vegetable root that they'd get from something because that's all they could afford to actually eat. Um, and we thought after a while, you know, like, how do we change the cycle here? And schooling is a problem over there. At that particular time, it wasn't free. And there were the, you know, we would have people come and say they want to sponsor a child and we'll put them in a school, but we'd take them to a school and then there was no spots in the school. So we figured that if on this particular village, which had, which had about 2,000 people in it, or has even more now, uh, that if we could educate their little kids when they're, say, this high, then perhaps on a 15-year cycle we could change their circumstance that perhaps they were able to be employed or have opportunities to do that type of thing. So every year uh, we've had a lot of support from various um, churches and people and uh, that and even this guy's brother actually. But, um, but not what? Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Still waiting for that donation. Um, yeah. You got your checkbook here? <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, we, we would primarily add another classroom every year on these 
two particular schools so the kids could go up their next next grade. So one of those schools has got about 600 kids now, the other one's got about 450 kids and it's, um, so it's cool, it's kind of like we were over there earlier this year and just looking at it and uh, my mate that we started it with, we sort of looked and went, well, if we hadn't have stepped out and done this, it wouldn't have, it never would have kind of got to this point, so. I mean, what I love, there's a perspective and a wisdom that you have now looking back and like people just saying, when I look at it in the period of the decade, just to put a couple things in context in terms of the the design business that these guys are involved in. So as you know, we 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 we're looking at properties and Paul would come. And literally real estate agent and I don't didn't even know Paul that well. But real estate agent one would literally pull me aside afterwards and goes, How did you get Paul Clark Nicole? And the negotiations were totally different. Um, the second agent pulls me aside and he goes, Noosa, the whole Noosa community owes a lot to the clouds. Wow, um, couldn't hear that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in Vanuatu, only early this year, um, the, for the work that they've done over a long period of time, they were awarded the President's Medal of um, Vanuatu. Um, so wow. it's, it's extraordinary. But the whole thing, well, if you can just hear it, which is like, oh, in 15 years, in a cycle, we could make a difference. Mm -hmm. And um, that whole sense of um, the least successful people on the planet just live for the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's different to being present in the moment. The most successful people on the planet think about generations. Mm -hmm. um, and if you break that down, if you are living for the moment, that's when you make a short-term decision for short pleasure but long-term pain. Mm -hmm. But with that longevity, you then have the ability, if you've got that you know, vision and that why, you can stay the course of moving these types of um, things. So that's something that um, I've always found encouraging when Paul chats. And then in terms of trust, when I've spoken to um, Paul on some decisions, that the words that come back nine times out of ten is like, you know, just keep your heart right you know, and God will guide your steps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got multiple messages from Paul that would say that. Um, and so I just want to thank Paul, and if we can just join in. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to crack in and we're going to hear from Lizzie. Um, I know this morning that Lizzie shared at the Women's Brekkie, and I just heard a buzz and a glow after that yeah. and she's someone that is so happy just to share of herself mm -hmm. and um, have a real strength in just saying this is where I'm where I am and I've pre-warned Lizzie what I'm going to be asking her today but um, her she's got a passion for soul <coughs> health and that passion for soul health as she's mentioned has come at a time when her soul was torn apart and then that's given her a bit of a heart to help that in other people and that notion that some of the things that we might want to despise or where we want to get the pickaxe and knock off our foundation and make it not part of our story um, in Liz there's been something she's embraced in that and learned from that and something beautiful has come out of that um, so I'm going to ask Liz to share but you know really I guess um, a beginning early part of that is you being involved in a in a an abusive and controlling relationship and um, yeah so if you can just share that I know that's not, not easy. easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah just tell us a yeah, bit what's for going sure. on about that time yeah. and what, what yeah. took you obviously you moved to Noosa but before then you were yeah. busy tell us about that. Yes um, yeah it does reference a little bit I guess to what Steve mentioned about um, the very thing that uh, is your passion or that ticks you off about something. And it references the redemptive nature of God in any situation. And I hear quite a few people say, I didn't sign up for this to be part of my story. And I don't think a lot of us would ever. But if it is, um, and you look back and see what God does through your story that's been redeemed, it's amazing. So as Pete referenced, um, I, I became a Christian at 19, uh, like such a Christian. And so fell in love with Jesus and so felt called to some form of ministry that I started investigating 
um, Bible College at the age of 19 and I think I um, signed up for one of the Blue Mountains. But I wasn't very wise to what can happen when you've suddenly become passionate about serving God, that there is an enemy that you know potentially would love to take you out. And so in those early stages, I watched a lot of my friends get married early and I had a real vulnerability to being quite lonely. And so that was a recipe for someone to come along and offer to comfort me in my loneliness. And I ended up um, starting to date a guy that was just not great. And early on in our relationship, I shared with him that for me as a Christian in 19, I'd actually, you know, was a virgin still. I was still, uh, which was unusual even back in my days <laughs> at that stage. But that was a value for me that I wanted to be in my first relationship to be with my husband when I, I got married. He um, didn't respect that uh, at all. And so I don't share this with many people, but yeah, so there was a violation that happened. Um, it because of the vow that I'd made that I wanted uh, that to be a sacred part of my life I think I, I felt like I had to stay with him because it was so I put up with about three three soul destroying years of control and manipulation and abuse because of that and the only thing I could control was eating so anorexia became a really good friend of mine in my early 20s. Um, through the grace of God, um, he managed to help me escape from that relationship and I ended up moving up to Noosa, eventually um, marrying Paul. We're still carrying... Yeah, what a turn <laughs> 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 Paul... Paul shared, Paul shared with um, these guys some of my unusual eating habits when we were dating and that I would hide the meals in pot plants and sugar bowls and all the strategies that you learn when you have an eating disorder of how to make food your enemy. So I came into the marriage carrying some really good baggage. It's also interesting the vows that you make when um, trust has been violated and and you've been so hurt that you will never let anyone hurt you like that again. And even not consciously making these vows inside you that then you carry into future relationships. So unbeknownst to Paul, um, I had a plan B that if it didn't work, I would be okay. You know, So I would never emotionally connect enough to him that I would be hurt if he decided to up and leave me in the process. And so in... Possibly up into the year 2000, we just did marriage, but you know, I mentioned before us heading in different emotional directions and the emotional connection just wasn't there. And it was marriage in a, a friendship, but a survival mode, I would guess. And I was at a colour conference and um, they announced that they were going to start this uh, ministry in Australia for girls that were really struggling with life controlling issues called Mercy Ministries. And, if you seriously could have shot an arrow from heaven and told me that that was part of my calling, it would have happened. I, I didn't know how I was going to be involved, but I knew. But I also knew I was so broken on the inside. And if I didn't actually attend to my soul, I would have nothing to say to any of these girls. So that intentionally started me on a journey of reading and seeking out help and um, going to courses and trying to understand the protective measures that I was employing and just all the things that I was doing that was causing my soul to be stunted. And I started to experience little by little the freedom that God brings when he actually brings healing to your soul. I started to get clues of how or what I was doing, bringing an awareness. And then walking girls through journeys over long periods of time, I could see the faithfulness of God. I could see the tricks that you play on yourself. I can see when you're denying what's going on in the inside, all these sort of things that would happen. And God in his kindness brought us both to a point of crisis in our marriage where if something didn't change, I don't know if, how it would look for us in the future. And God supernaturally in a night uh, just did this crazy thing in Paul's life, in my life. Such a rescuing God. So it's out of uh, a story that I never asked for 
the God birth something that I am so passionate about and feel so privileged to um, watch anyone else sort of walk in that freedom. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm. But and what and what I notice, you do it with such a, a loving heart, not a um, not a a hurt heart, if that makes sense. And you talked a little bit about agreements and vows. Mm. And, and, and the agreements and vows that we make, that we don't even realise we make, mm. that we could make as a kid when we got hurt doing something and mm. I'm never going to try to public speak again, mm. I'm never going to let someone hurt me. We're all carrying them at some point. Mm. Um, what, what, what was it for you to realise those vows and, and then break them? I guess, what was the process you did to actually break those vows? Yeah, I think the Holy Spirit's really kind how he shows you where you've made an agreement that's actually going to destroy you rather than um, bring you freedom. Because I think, like you say, it's such a, a subconscious, unconscious thing that we do in a moment of hurt or, or despair. And uh, unless he actually reveals it to you, then you don't know. And I think in his kindness, he reveals it to you at the right time for when he will. you have the empowerment to actually um, break the agreement. So I, I found myself on an altar call, I, even with the trust issue, um, I found myself on an altar call of surrender, an altar call of surrender like this. And everything in my body language was like, I, I dare you to, <laughs> I dare you to do something. I, I dare you to prove yourself. It was like the, the most, unsurrendered stance because of trust but he he would just gently ask me the question and tell me you know do you trust me and I would <coughs> say no I don't because I think emotional honesty is important in mm. the whole journey of healing otherwise mm. if you're just faking it then you're never gonna actually experience what God so we we talked through the, tr the whole trust issue because I was honest enough to say I can't I cannot trust you and then we would trace back to where I'd made the vow and then I would I guess repent from making the vow and say you know it it's um, reflected a season in my life when I was hurt and I'm sorry but I can't I can't trust you if you don't help me to trust you if you don't reveal who you are so it's an onward going journey with the Holy Spirit doing his thing S this most stunning counsellor that you could ever have the, the kindest, the one that leads you at the right time, at the right place, with the right words mm. and the right grace to yeah. walk into the freedom that he's got. Mm. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so much, and, and what I've picked out from chatting to you guys, but not based on your performance or, or state, and you referenced um, a prayer you were praying for Paul at the time and um, Paul having a supernatural intervention where you would say, Paul, you were super cynical, super cynical, don't believe in this Holy Spirit thing. Right. Um, do you want to talk about, I guess, your perspective, Liz, and then what, what was going on with you, Paul? Yeah, so uh, we'd reached uh, at about the 10-year mark in our marriage. It was just really, we were so far apart emotionally, it wasn't funny. And there was an there must have been just one crisis at night where I said to him, oh, I seriously don't know what to do. Like I've run out of strategy. <laughs> all I can do is pray. And I don't know if you realize, and I actually meant all I can do is pray, like help now out loud. So I did, I just went, God, we're in a mess and we really need your help. And I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do anymore. I'm at the end, he's at the end, amen. And then all of a sudden he just started laughing. What was, so you're super cynical and you just have this, um, like. Yeah, we're at, we're at a point where everything is good. You know, the, it was part of our successful moments in building and finance and kids were fine. We were probably okay parents, I hope. Um, but. I don't know, we just were at a point where I suppose part of Lizzie's, uh, what she's been talking about in the connection, the inability to connect with me was sort of, was almost like a 
barrier there between us sort of thing. And so I got my, a lot of my worth and that out of my work because that was successful. So, but, and we got to a point where we were just an old married couple that kind of existed. Existed, didn't really, probably didn't really like each other that much. Maybe, I don't know. We probably sort of did. But, um, and then, yeah, when Lizzie prayed and I was, I sort of, she said she wants to pray and I sort of went, ah, oh, what do you want to pray for? You know, because I got to that point where everything was just, oh, yeah, I knew that was God, don't get me wrong, I hadn't backslidden totally, but sometimes you get to that point where you're kind of going, oh, yeah, are we going to pray, you know? Um, she starts praying and then I started laughing. I'm not a laugher, I'm not a crier. I'm not an emotional type of person. Anyway, I just started laughing, and she thought I was being facetious at first, and then she thought, <laughs> and then she thought I was being having a mental breakdown or something. <laughs> anyway, it was the weirdest night ever, and I used to think people that ever explained anything that I've been through before this moment were total Fruit Loops, and you'd just, you know, write them off basically. That, but um, the whole night I just laughed and cried and uh, God was just showing me pictures on a, I was explaining to someone today the story that it was just like this massive TV screen and I could watch myself when I was three years old or ten years old or twenty years old or mm. it would flip back to last week and back to then and he was showing me pictures of my, not pictures but movies vividly of myself at various points and I kind of got to the point where I felt and the sense of God's presence was so strong. And prior to that moment, I really thought that <clears throat> I really thought that if I ever came into the presence of God in a real sense, that I'd be cowering. I'd be going, "Oh my goodness," you know. Um, and and yet I could almost sense Him sitting on the ceiling and in one spot, and we were just having a chat. And He's just showing me this great big video screen, and I'm just watching it. But after a while, I've I noticed I, I, I worked out that He was actually trying to break down mindsets that I created in my life through marriage or through whatever part. And, and I think if, if anyone really said to me, um, do, you, do, do you think God loves you? I would say yes, but would I believe that? No way, I'd just say that because we're told to say that. But if, if I was asked the question, does he love Andrew, I'd probably say no, no, not at all. <laughs> but anyone else other than Andrew, I'd say, yeah, of course he does. Of course he does, and I believe that. But does he love me? I don't think he does. You know, it was kind of almost this real self-doubt in my faith about how I actually was with God. And all these pictures and stuff were showing me and where I'd created the mindsets where perhaps I didn't trust God or didn't believe God and that type of thing. And from that was a really that that encounter was a really significant moment for my faith to change it on a different course. And that emotion is a sense of when you're saying you're laughing, it's a, it's a sense of relief. Or what what was the emotion going on behind that? I can't really even explain it. Mm. It was just really weird. Mm. And like I said, if I if someone had told me that they'd been through that, say a week, even a week before I did. I just think you're a total idiot, but and it wasn't God; it was some weird thing. But um, I think it was just release, mm. and it was like a it was almost like a physical outcome of what was going on in my body to give me the sense of what was that what I was going through was actually quite real. Mm. Mm. Anyone want me to pray for you? <laughs> 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 That's a scary thought now. Just a couple questions in terms of I get how does surrender and working at things go together? So how how do you do things with a surrendered heart, not this attitude of Yeah, yeah. Pressure? We we chatted about that a little this morning. Yeah. Because it's ne it's never a a checklist of what you feel you need to achieve in um, your behaviours or your attitudes. It's always uh, I, lean, I lean in and I rest and I abide deeper than I try harder. Because um, 
which I, I have been fascinated by the abiding life for a long period of time because it's, it's such a significant passage of scripture where we're asked to remain in him and apart from him we can do nothing and there's this life stream of all that is, um, is beautiful and the fruits of the spirit and, and calm and um, creativity and compassion and um, yeah, so much a well of what is that how do we tap into this life that's, that's already abiding within us um, when it comes to the areas that we have to surrender because in all honesty I don't think we can actually do it ourselves for true healing and true change it has to be a surrender to the life of Christ that's already inside us and I was chatting I was mentioning this morning that you know I wish that I could say to you I've dealt with insecurity Boom, it's gone but there'll always be triggers that come that uh, you know I think I've sorted it and there's a trigger that comes and I go oh my gosh I'm sensing that whole thing of insecurity and I'm potentially comparing myself and I know I shouldn't compare myself but all I feel that it is is a flag to say Liz who are you depending on right now and which life are you depending on is that yourself or is that the life of the spirit in you and if I just see it as simply as a little valve inside me where I just go help and let the life of the Spirit start to flow through, which is, you know, the joy and the gratitude which kills comparison or ki kills entitlement or kills insecurity or whatever. So it's a dependent life. It's an intentional dependent life that just you have to practice mm -hmm. and, and heightening the awareness that anything that comes your way that potentially is a surrender need um, is a flag to say, bring on the life of Christ that is already abiding in me continually as a stream and I'm so dependent on it and apart from him I can't do it really so I'm helpless <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm intentional about living awareness as much as I can and it's that's you know it's an ongoing yearly life journey and I can imagine that whole time just picking up one aspect of trust because there's a sense of, you know, when, can I trust you, God? And you go, no, I can't. But in surrender, you have to trust God. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we go through difficult times, to, to, to I, I think that's a big part. I mean, I mean, Andrew, you touched on it. Do you trust God? Do you trust him? Do you trust that he's got his... And it's very, much, it's very much being deliberate about knowing who he is because if I feel, and I was chatting this morning about that, if I feel that I've continually disappointed him with my, some of areas of my life, then it's hard to trust a God that you feel is disappointed in you because there's this barrier. So I've got to understand his nature and his character and that he's not sitting over there disappointed and, and frustrated with me because he's God. He doesn't live with that sort of, oh my gosh, that's a surprise that Liz stuffed up here. I mean, he's, I don't think he has disappointment or frustration because he's, um, he's never caught out. He doesn't live with that expectation on us. So it's been very intentional about pursuing who he is so that, as you say, you can trust him. It's very different from what we've experienced here on earth, mm -hmm. yeah. if that makes sense. That's good. 